Well, hey guys, welcome to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. I am the lead pastor. If it's your first time here, welcome. Hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but the museum is finally getting the blackout shades in here. Isn't that great? We're done with like a solarium, and now we can, I don't have to see you guys anymore. No, I'm kidding. Hold on a second here. Anyway, another thing is this. Um, I do have a pretty good cough, so if I start hacking in the middle of the service, I apologize. I've Googled it. It may be tuberculosis, but we're not sure yet. <coughs> Could be. Anyway. So this is exciting. This is a brand new series that we are kicking off today. We're calling it False Memory. And um, I'm excited because it's going to enable us to talk about several topics that, to be quite honest with you, don't normally fit into your average sermon series. So this title, False Memory, I didn't come up with this name. This is actually a scientific term. Uh, false memory is a psychological phenomenon where in human, where humans remember things that actually didn't happen. Happens all the time. I mean, how many times have you yourself been telling a story around your family and all of a sudden they look at you and they go, well, that didn't happen. What are you talking about? And you go, really? I could have sworn that this happened. That did not happen at all. Now, this is an issue, particularly in the legal system. What we see many times is that false memory will play uh, a factor in false um, allegations. It will come into unreliable witness testimony. So this false memory really does become an issue in society. And as I was kind of reading a couple of psychological papers just trying to understand this phenomenon more, I learned something very interesting. I learned that memory can be reconstructed as one ages and as one's worldview changes. So essentially what this is saying is that as you live your life and as you experience life, that can actually reach back into time and reconstruct how you know what you knew. That's a problem. That's an issue. Okay, and this is helpful for today because what we're going to find out is that false memory does play a part in the way that we remember Scripture. Generally speaking, when we're talking about Scripture, particularly if you've been a lifelong Christian or if you've been a Christian for many times, many of us do have certain verses memorized. A lot of times with our kids, we challenge them to memorize Scripture. And one that a lot of us have memorized is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believeth in him shall not perish, but have uh, everlasting life. Obviously, I was raised in the King James Version. Yours might sound a little different. All right, but we have these particular ones memorized. But outside of the superstar verses, if you will, that's when our memories start getting a little bit more cloudy. And, and you might have a friend that will come up to you because they know you're a Christian, and they say, hey, John, let me ask you a question. What does the Bible have to say about you know, this particular topic. And now you're trying to, you know, now you're trying to dig into the memory bank and you go, all right, well, uh, okay, I think it was the New Testament. It wasn't, okay? And, and, and I'm fairly certain it was Paul. It wasn't. And, and, I, and I think he said something along the lines of this, and he did not, okay? Congratulations, you've just birthed bad theology. And, and we've done it all the time. We do this all the time where we try to reach back into our memory banks and we try to remember scripture. And a lot of times, it's just not the way that we thought it was. And so throughout this series, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at verses and topics and issues and concepts that we swear we remember reading in the Bible when in reality, they are not there at all. So to kick off this series, I wanted to start with just a 
just a doozy, right? One that's just super controversial, one that is a massive, massive problem in, in my opinion. And it's one, interestingly enough, it's one that really focuses on the church and how churches as a whole begin to treat and remember scripture. So in this country and in this world, there are large denominations, very large denominations, and many, many well-meaning Christians that firmly believe that the Bible says that drinking alcohol is a sin. You ask them and they say, well, you know, Bible says drinking alcohol is a sin. Drinking alcohol is a sin. That's what the Bible says. Now, before we dive into this topic, let me just put this disclaimer out there. The legal drinking age in this country is 21. So everything that we are saying, everything we are talking about today only, is only pertinent to those of us who are over that age. But, but there are churches and there are Christians that say drinking alcohol is a sin. And because it's a sin, you as Christians should not drink alcohol. Now, some churches so firmly believe this that they will actually have their staff sign contracts. If you want to work here, you need to sign on this line saying that you, as an employee of this church, will not drink alcohol. Some churches believe the Bible says this so heavily that they will actually, if you want to become a member of this church, after you're done taking our sort of membership orientation class, whatever you want to call it, they will say, if you want to become a member of this church, you need to sign this covenant that says that you, as a member of this church, will not drink alcohol. Problem is, it's a great church. You love this church. You want to be a part of this church, but you drink alcohol. And your parents drank alcohol, and your grandparents, and maybe you're European, and, 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 and alcohol was the part of your culture, and, and now this church is saying, no, 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 everything you've ever known, everything you're doing is a sin, and you need to stop doing it. And all of a sudden, everything that you thought was okay, now you're meant to feel like a pariah within this church because of something that you do. Now, if you're new to Christianity, or you belong to a denomination where this wasn't an issue, you hear what I'm saying, and you're going, this is a thing? This is a problem? This sounds like something out of, you know, the movie Footloose or whatever. But this is a real issue. This is a real issue with real ramifications because there are churches all over the world telling their congregation that the Bible says that drinking alcohol is a sin. And my goal for you today is to understand that this statement is false. It's false. Yeah, but John, I could have sworn I remember reading in the Bible that drinking alcohol is a sin. No, you didn't. Yeah, but I definitely one time heard a pastor preaching a message about how, well, you may have heard that sermon. I'm just letting you know that when it comes to God's word, as much as you think you remember reading it in there, it is not in there. In fact, the Bible speaks positively about alcohol on many circumstances. It says this, you, and this is now speaking to God, you, Make the grass for cattle and the vegetables for the people. You make food grow from the earth. You give us wine that makes happy hearts and olive oil that makes our faces shine. I don't know why they're putting olive oil on their face, okay? But whatever, okay? Like after a salad, you're usually wiping it off, not putting it on more, okay? It continues. It says this. Here's another one. Let's get the next one up for them. So go ahead, he says. Eat your food with joy and drink your wine with a happy heart for God approves of this. Uh-oh. I thought God didn't approve of this, and now all of a sudden the Bible, hold on a second, what's going on here? 
Just for good measure, just get a little New Testament in there for you. Paul speaks about the medicinal value of alcohol. He tells one of his young preacher friends, he says, Timothy, don't drink only water. That'll kill you, all right? You, you ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often because they understood that water at that time could be a little dicey. You better drink some wine, he's saying. So you're, you're hearing these verses and you're asking yourself, wait, 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 hold on. Where did, the, where did the don't drink thing come from? Where, where did the alcohol is a sin thing come from? Because based on what you've just shown me here, it seems like the Bible is saying quite the opposite. So where has this false memory entered into the picture that, is, that has told people that alcohol is a sin? Well, I'll show you. Paul, the man who just told his buddy to drink some wine, also said this. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. This is the primary verse that many Christians will go to when they say alcohol is a sin. Paul says, don't drink wine. But you are very smart people. That's why you come to this church. Even at a surface level reading, you can see that is not what this is saying. This is not saying alcohol is a sin. This is saying don't get drunk with wine. Don't get drunk with wine because it's going to ruin your life. There are ramifications in your life when you go too far with alcohol, so don't do that. But this raises a very interesting question because there's a command here that says don't be drunk. So the question that that it raises and one that you're not going to hear discussed in any other church, again, that's why you come here, the question is this, what does it mean to be drunk? Do you ever think about that? What does it actually mean to be drunk? In this country, legally speaking, at least in Florida, if you get in a car after drinking and you blow a 0.08% blood alcohol content, you are drunk driving. But nobody walks around a party going, hey, did you see Mike? He's looking a little 0.08. Okay, that's just not, that's not how we operate in life. And so I was thinking, how do we make this practical for this church? So I want to run you through just a, just a scenario that I think brings some clarification to this drunk issue. Blue Martini. We all know Blue Martini in this room. It's not the hottest place in town anymore, but it's a well-known place. It's a bar in the community, as my dad would call it, a gin mill. Don't really know what that is, okay? But it's a, it's a bar. Now, <clears throat> if we somehow got our hands on the roster of who went there last night, and we just got them on the speakerphone right now, and we called them up, and we said, hey, the good people at Downtown Arbor Church, we're just doing a survey. Can you let us know, were you drunk last night? First person picks up the phone. Were you drunk, sir? And they would say, no, actually, I wasn't, you know, I'm, uh, I don't drink or uh, I'm taking some time off. So I just had seltzers, had a Diet Coke. No, I wasn't drunk. Next person, sir, uh, ma'am, can you tell us, were you drunk? And they say, no. Meanwhile, their friends in the back are going, yeah, you were. Okay, you know, you were. Next person, were you, were you drunk? And they say, no, I wasn't drunk. Had a little bit of buzz, though, a little bit of a buzz. Next person, ah, uh, a little drunk, a little drunk towards the end. Next person, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, and don't miss this, I was so drunk. And then finally, the phone rings, and it just keeps ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing, and the guy guy finally answers, and he goes, I was destroyed last night, destroyed. And you're laughing because you've said similar things yourself. I know, I'm at the top of the escalator, which is now like the confession booth for this church, okay? (laughs) I'm keeping tabs on you all. Here's what... Here's the whole point of this exercise. One's perception of being drunk is wildly subjective. It is. 
We've now turned this term drunk into a spectrum where you are a little drunk, you're kind of drunk, you're so drunk, annihilated, okay? You know this to be the case. And I'll further complicate this issue for you. Different amounts of alcohol affect people differently. If you're five feet tall, all right, and you're, you know, you're thin as a rail, one glass of Cabernet is going to knock you on your keister. I've seen it at DHC nights, I know. <laughs> but a glass of wine like that for someone, you know, such as myself with just, <laughs> just can't, right? <laughs> My wife goes, if you say that from the stage, I'm never coming back. Well, <laughs> nice having her here, all right? But it, it, it impacts people differently. And here's why this is a problem. This is why this is a problem. This is a real conversation. The Bible gives us a command that says, don't be drunk with wine. And it's difficult for us to put our finger on what it means to be drunk. So if you take the totality of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, everything positive the Scripture has to say about alcohol with everything negative it has to say, a definition does begin to emerge about what the authors of God's Word are talking about. And the definition that I think Downtown Harbor Church should use when it comes to being drunk is this, when you lose the ability to control your own actions. This is what is at the core of the issue. And in fact, the verse of the day speaks of this. Take a look at what it says. It says this, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Other translations continue to elaborate on the Greek and say this, and controlled by him. See, this is the crux of the issue. This is the problem. This is what he's talking about here. Because the Bible doesn't say, don't drink alcohol. The Bible doesn't give it a command to say, you know, don't get drunk at your office Christmas party, which you should not. What the scripture talks about time and time and time again is them pleading you and warning you, do not live a life of drunkenness. You're a Christian. You've given your heart to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. Don't get to a place where you've consumed so much alcohol that your inhibitions have been left so low that the wine is now calling the shots. Don't let alcohol, you know, lead you around by the nose. Don't allow it to, be make, to allow you to make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And yet, and yet, churches will continue to say, the Bible says, Bible says, alcohol is a sin. Okay? Well, let's find out what Jesus has to say about it, because, you know, he's the most important guy, and that's why we're here today. So what does Jesus have to say about alcohol? For that, we're going to take a look at John chapter 2. This is a really great story. The next day was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Continues. <clears throat> the wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Have you ever been to a party where you run out of alcohol? Not a good scene, okay? It's even worse in this time, because let me tell you why. These parties, these wedding celebrations, and I just learned this this week, would last somewhere between one and two weeks. Weeks. So this is a problem. This is a major issue. And let me let you just learn on a secret here. Even if you're my best friend and I'm at your wedding, I'm ready to go before dinner, sir. So if you think I'm coming to your wedding for like one or two weeks, you got another thing coming to you, all right? Drives my wife crazy when I'm like, can we go now? She goes, no, that's so rude. Okay, fine. Anyway, this is a problem because the hosts of this time are expected to provide 
all the food and all the drink, enough to last the guests for upwards of two weeks. So this is a massive embarrassment. Additionally, what's so interesting is that you see that Jesus' mother is getting involved in this. Now, theologians are not exactly sure what her role was in this wedding, but they do believe she had some kind of role here. Whether it's paid or not, voluntary or not, clearly she has some role with making sure the supplies last for the whole party. So the fact that they ran out, this is a potential blow to her reputation. So she goes to her son, Jesus, Jesus. They ran out of wine. Jesus replies, dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now, I want to stop and just talk briefly about this because this What's going on here? The best way that I can tee this up is this. What you're reading here is not what's happening here. Two things are going on. This first sentence where it says, dear woman, that's not our problem. Theologians will tell you that what is actually happening here is Jesus, for the first time in his life, is publicly declaring and clarifying who is in charge of him. And it's not his mom. And this isn't the case of Jesus saying, Mom, you're not the boss of me. This is him saying, I answer to God. Because Mary in this moment knew exactly what she was asking Jesus to do. I don't know how she knew, but she knew what her son was capable of. She knew what she was doing. And Jesus in this moment, although our translation doesn't show it, Jesus is saying, Mom, it's not for you to tell me how to run the Messiah side of my life. But then he says, my time has not yet come. Jesus says this about three or four other times throughout the New Testament. And here's what's happening here. What Jesus is saying here in this moment is that it is not time for him to reveal his purpose here on this earth, meaning his Messiahship. But based on what happens next, we know that God's timetable, speaking about time, God's timetable does allow for Jesus to begin giving evidence of his calling. And we don't see any of this. But Mary does. That's why Mary says this, do whatever he tells you to do. See, all we read was, mom, get out of here. You're annoying me. Go away. She did not. She understands exactly what's going on. That's why he says, do whatever he says. And it continues. And this is where it gets good. Standing, near, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water, continues. When the jars have been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremony. So the servants followed his instructions. It continues. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water, that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. He goes, come here, let me talk to you real quick. He says, a host always serves the best wine first. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. 2,000 years later, nothing has changed, right? You have a party, right? You show everybody, look, we're serving Grey Goose and Tito's here. And by the end of the night, they're happy with rubbing alcohol, all right? <laughs> it's not a problem. Whatever, so you got Purell, psh, psh, not a problem. Nothing has changed, but also understand this about what happened here. I firmly believe, I firmly believe that what Jesus made here was perhaps the finest wine ever created. Absolutely. That what he created here in this moment could not only go toe-to-toe, but would beat out, you know, Romani Conti. 
the, 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 the most famous wine that is, that is sold to this day. And don't forget the fact that Jesus in this moment has saved this family from embarrassment, and I actually think he brought them honor because, wow, look at how much this family thinks of us. They are bringing out this amazing wine when everybody else would have brought out the schlock. It ends by saying this. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Oh, look at that. That's going to drive me crazy. (sighs) Point of clarification. We often call this the first miracle, the first miracle where Jesus turned water into wine. Technically, this is a sign. And there's a difference. A miracle is something that defies nature. A sign is something that points to a greater truth. Now, the author here calls this a miraculous sign, which means it both. But what he does right here points to a greater truth. What is the greater truth? Jesus' glory. And the greater truth is that the God of the Old Testament is now acting anew in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure we don't miss the significance of this story. Because what's happening here is that Jesus confirmed his divine nature by making wine. His first divine act was making alcohol. His disciples believed that he was who he claimed to believe because because he made alcohol. This is problematic for people who say, eh, the Bible says drinking alcohol is a sin. Your your savior made alcohol. Do you want to know what this group will say about the wine that Jesus made? The wine Jesus made was non-alcoholic. You think I'm making this up? I mean, I don't mean, I'm not like poking fun of them. This is what they say. They will say that the wine, the wine that Jesus made, the wine of that time was different than the wine that we have today. It was unfermented, right? Because the master of ceremony said, oh, you brought out the good Welch's grape juice right now. Really, that's good. That people really appreciate. Do you know what this does when you say something like this? This impugns the work of God. This impugns the work of God. It's an insult to God himself. And it's mis leading, and you are casting doubt on signs that Jesus Christ himself gave to point to his glory and to point to the work of God on this planet. So I just want to prove to you, just because you may have a conversation, somebody call you out. I just want to give you all the facts of the case, just so I want to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the wine that Jesus Christ made was in fact alcoholic. So the word for the wine in Greek, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, is this Greek word, Oinos. This is the root word, oinos. And it says a fermented beverage made from the juice of grapes, wine. I literally just copy and pasted this from the Greek biblical dictionary. So the question at hand is this. Is this the word that was used to describe what Jesus made at the wedding ceremony? Take a look. Oinos, the Greek word. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, oinos. It's the word, and it's there. Here, I'll take it a step further. Let's, di- let's go into the Old Testament. One day Noah drank some wine, oinos, he had made, and he became drunk, and he lay naked inside his tent. Last time I checked, grape juice doesn't make you take your clothes off, okay? <laughs> Lastly, for good measure, the verse of the day, don't be drunk with wine, oinos. Oinos, oinos, oinos. The bottom line is this, Jesus Christ made alcoholic wine. I can't believe we're having this conversation. 
But there are people out there saying he did not. Look, here's the deal. If you have an agenda about alcohol, that's fine. That's your prerogative. But you cannot point to this and say, this is the defense for what you believe. So when this line doesn't work for them, when they realize, okay, I can't go this route, the next thing they say is, well, here's the deal. Here's why you shouldn't drink alcohol. You don't want to be a stumbling block. You've heard this before, some of you. Don't be a stumbling block. This is a complex topic. And and I wanted to give you a definition for it, but you really can't because stumbling block means different things at different times. Throughout the New Testament, you see it used four or five times. Jesus says it once or twice. Paul says it primarily. A stumbling block at some point is used to talk about behaviors or activities that would cause someone to lose their faith in Jesus Christ. Another time to talk about behaviors or activities that would prevent someone from having faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's talked about where it's behaviors or activities that would simply cause someone to sin. Sometimes it's talked about behaviors or activities that would cause someone to just violate their conscience, which is not sinning at all. But when we're talking about stumbling block and we're talking about wine or alcohol, primarily people will point to Paul because Paul speaks about this most. And Paul, in a number of circumstances, primarily in Romans and Corinthians, has a conversation about this idea of being a stumbling block. Now, when Paul is talking about stumbling blocks, primarily in Romans, he is talking about what do you do? What do you do when you're with two groups of people? One group, as he describes it, has strong faith. And the other group has weak faith. What are you supposed to do? And his conversation revolves around food laws. So you have to remember, Christianity at this point is like 15 years old, maybe, if that. And so what he's saying in this conversation is that, look, you've, you've got people now who are Christians who used to be Jewish. You have people now who are Christians who used to be pagans, and, and, they're, and they're coming into this faith, and they're wondering, the Jewish people are wondering, well, can we eat meat now? Can we eat certain kinds of vegetables? Can we do this kind of a thing? Food laws. You have pagans who are in cultures where, where their neighbors are still sacrificing meat to idols. And because food is scarce, they're wondering, well, can, can we eat this meat now that's been sacrificed to idols? All the while, Jesus says, eat whatever you want. What goes into your mouth doesn't defile you. you, you there are no longer food laws. And so Paul has this long conversation, and, he go, and, and it's basically like this. Look, look, guys, for those of you who are strong in your faith, for those of you Christians who understand that you're allowed to eat whatever you want, look, if somebody invites you over to their house and they have weak faith and they're still working their way through this meat thing, just do them a solid, skip meat that night. Don't eat meat because we don't want to be a stumbling block for them. Meaning, we don't want to do anything that makes their journey any more confusing, any more difficult. So just, just if you would, just don't eat meat around them. And so he wraps up this long conversation, anywhere from talking about holidays to vegetables to, to meat given to idols, and he kind of wraps it up by giving a blanket sort of statement. When he says this, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything whereby your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Aha, see, told you. The Bible says, don't drink. Don't drink. There it is, right there in black and white. You see it for yourself. Don't drink. You're going to be a stumbling block. We had a problem, though. 
Because as you may or may not know, Scripture can't contradict itself. That's one of the beautiful things about Scripture. And so if you're ever reading something in Scripture and you're like, wait, 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 hold on a second. This is contradicting what I read over here. we got a problem. Well, the problem's not with the Scripture. The problem's with our understanding. And we got our main man, Paul, here, who told his buddy Timothy, go drink some wine. And now he's seemingly saying, don't drink any wine. That's a contradiction what's going on here. See, what Paul is actually talking about here is situational sensitivity. This is the whole conversation. He's saying, you just want to be aware of your surroundings when you're doing the things that you're doing. In that first century, he's talking about eating meat around people who are struggling with eating meat. For us, that might be being aware of perhaps an alcoholic that's near you. And you just got to ask yourself, is it wise? Is it wise for you to drink in the presence of an alcoholic? I mean, Paul would say, look, listen, enjoy your wine. But tonight, because this guy's here, take the night off. We don't want to be a stumbling block. We want to, we want to help this guy. We don't want to make things more difficult. We want to lead, you know, we just, just, for tonight, take the night off. Would you do that? And that sounds reasonable to us. But then they would say, hmm, not so fast, because you never know, let's pull it up for them, you never know who is watching. So you should just never drink alcohol. Let me just tell you something about this line of thinking right here. This is dangerously close to legalism. It's dangerously close to legalism. Because you know what this statement is really saying? Do you know what the, what the framework behind this logic is? It's that anything that causes someone else to sin is a stumbling block, and it should be outlawed. It should be outlawed. Now, if you believe that to be the case, great. That's fine. That's your prerogative. But, but if, if this is the framework that you want to use, we need to extrapolate this out to the nth degree to make sure it always works. So, for example, I'm driving on 95. Many of you have to drive on that horrendous highway. And you cut somebody off or you get cut off, and you think about murdering them because that's what driving on 95. By the standard set forth by Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, if you even contemplate murdering them, you've already murdered them in your heart. You've sinned. My driving has now caused this person to sin by thinking about murdering me. Thereby, Therefore, I should just stay home and not drive. How about this one? You know this guy? Okay, let's just do a quick survey of the room. Ladies in the room. Wives, if you're married, I give you a special pastoral dispensation to answer this question. If you're so bold, would you raise your hand if you find this man attractive? Okay, you've all sinned. <clears throat> you've all sinned. This week, Christina and I were kind of going over this, and she goes, well, what's this picture of? And I said, well, this, I tried to figure out a, a universally attractive man. I, I thought Brad Pitt, you know, that would, that, would, that would work. And she goes, oh, I don't really find him attractive. She goes, you should use Chris Helmsworth. And so we went back, people are nodding their heads. We went back and forth 30 minutes about the, you know, the pros and cons. And I said, stop, stop, stop. As the lead pastor of this church, it is the official statement that Brad Pitt is the most attractive man in the world. <laughs> so we're going with this, okay? So here's a follow-up question. Men in the room, husbands in the room, now that you've just seen that your wives have raised their hands, are you jealous? Okay, you don't have to raise your hands, okay? You jealous? You've sinned. Okay, there you go. Here, here. Do you know what this means? This means that Brad Pitt's very existence on this planet is a stumbling block. 
His studliness is causing some of you to lust in church, by the way. He's causing some of you to just be filled with envy and jealousy because you can't have that tremendous, you know, facial hair and, and hair that he's got. Gorgeous. Here's why I say this. At some point, every single one of you is going to do something or say something that might possibly cause someone else to sin. Should we never leave our house? We can't do this. Here's the point of this ridiculous exercise, okay? We need to be careful about how we throw around the term stumbling block. You just got to be careful. Paul's goal, as, if you're familiar at all with the scripture, Paul's goal was to never set up food laws. Never. He tears them down. It was never to outlaw meat. It was never to outlaw wine. It was never to outlaw certain behaviors. His goal was to make sure that we are aware of our surroundings so that we as Christians can make sure that we're building up other Christians and not doing anything that might make it more difficult for them in their walk with Jesus Christ. Let me wrap this up because I've exhausted the topic. Scripture does not condemn the consumption of alcohol. If you have an objection to alcohol, that is absolutely your right. If you don't want to drink alcohol, good for you. Number one, you save a lot of calories. You'll sleep a lot better. And you won't risk making bad decisions. But, 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 that's your worldview. And you have a right to have a worldview. But you cannot impose your worldview onto God's word. You just can't do that. And that's what's happening here. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? First, and this first one is going to go for today, and it's going to go for the rest of the series. I would challenge every single one of you here today or listening online to be like the Bereans. That is a churchy phrase if I've ever heard one. What the heck does this mean? It's referring to a verse in Scripture in Acts where it says this. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Here's why I say this. To quote LeVar Burton of Reading Rainbow, you don't have to take my word for it, okay? I've presented what I believe to be a solid, biblically-based case of what the scripture says about alcohol. Now it's your job to go home and do some homework. Scripture applauds people that do their homework when it comes to to, to things that are being taught. And the reason that this is so important for you guys here is that you're going to live your life when people are going to come to you and they're going to say, the Bible says, the Bible says, and it's your job to figure out if what they're saying is true or if they are suffering from false memory. Secondly, challenge for the day. Be wise with your freedom. As an adult over the age of 21, and as a Christian, you have the freedom to consume alcohol. Just be smart. That's what Paul's saying. Be wise. Understand the risks associated with the consumption of alcohol. Understand that when you drink too much, it lowers your inhibition. And it may cause you to make some very unwise decisions that perhaps you might have to live with for the rest of your life. And as Paul challenges us, be aware of your surroundings. We can't know everyone's struggles around us. It's just impossible. But if you are in the presence of someone that struggles with alcohol, be wise. Take the night off. Just take the night off. 
So this week, as you're kind of wrestling around with these claims, thinking about what, how you may have been taught, how you may have been raised, what your own theories are on this, remember what we talked about today. Drinking alcohol is not wrong, but letting it control your life is. Throughout the New Testament, we see warning after warning after warning. Do not, do not live a life of drunkenness. It's fine to have a nice time, but Jesus has called you to live something better for your life. And he doesn't want you see, to see you being dragged around by the nose by consuming too much. So let's be smart. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today. I wanna thank you for the miracle that you performed, that miraculous sign at the wedding of Cana, introducing yourself to the world, the glory that is you as the savior of mankind. Lord, alcohol is a, a complicated topic with a lot of tension filled around it. And we're not just talking theologically, Jesus, but we're just talking in life. It's a struggle for a lot of people. Lord, if there's someone in this room who really does struggle with alcohol, I pray that you, that you would give them the strength, Lord, on their journey to overcome that. Those of us, Lord, who are Christians who do, who do consume alcohol, I pray, Lord, that you would help us be wise in the manner in which we do that, showing the world that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and here's how you, you partake in this activity responsibly. Most importantly, Lord, as we go out and we leave these rooms, I, I just pray that you would challenge us to read the scriptures for ourselves, to make sure that, that our memory does serve us right, that we have a good grasp of what scripture says as we go out there and we tell other people, the Bible says, the Bible says. Lord, every single one of us has a need today, and I pray that today you would meet us at the place of our need. Whatever's going on in our life, Lord, I pray that your son would show up in a mighty and powerful way. We can feel your presence in a mighty and powerful way. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.